Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to turn to uh, Genesis, and uh, we're going to uh, go to um, Genesis 27 today. But before you do that, I want you to just take a slight detour and go to Genesis 25 so that I can remind you of something that's already taken place in our study here. We are now uh, into the life of uh, Isaac and uh, his wife, Rebecca, that's where we are in the uh, line of the patriarchs. We're into Isaac and Rebecca, and they've had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And we're going to see that Jacob, uh, and have been learning that Jacob is continuing as the son uh, in that family of the promise. The promise. What promise? Well, the, the promise that originated between God and Abraham all the way back, I know I said 25, but all the way back in chapter 12, uh, that God gave a promise, a covenant with uh, Abram at the time. And it said this, uh, Lord said to Abram, I want you to leave your country, get out from your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I'll show you. That's the land of Canaan, folks. I'm putting that in there. I'll make you a great nation, he told Abram. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse him who curses you. And here comes, listen to this. And in all the families of the earth, or and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I got news for you, folks by the time that we get to chapter 25. And several times over the course of Abraham's life, God reiterated these promises to Abraham. But now as we get to the life of Isaac, Abraham or Sarah's died, Abraham's wife, now Abraham's died. And look at this in verse 19 of chapter 25. This is the genealogy of Isaac. Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 year old when he took Rebekah's wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her and she said of If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, you ready? Two nations are in your womb. Twins. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And here's really the key right here for our story today. And the older shall serve the younger. Now that's a little bit different as we've been descri- or talking about and thinking about. Even as we move through Genesis and we get into the giving of the law, I talked to you about this last time, the oldest male in the family was to receive a double inheritance. He was to get wealth. Why? Because he was so great and wonderful? Not necessarily. It's because he was charged with taking care of and blessing the family and keeping them together and loved and cared for. And he was to be, obviously, the provider through the wealth, but also the spiritual leader of the family and to continue that on. Amen? So you with me? Now I'm going to take you one other place. And I said it last week, and we'll remind each other as we move forward. What are we doing here from a high-level perspective? Well, what God is doing is he is fulfilling something that was prophesied in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. It's this in verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed or you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly. You shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I'm going to, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And here it comes. Here's the one to remember. He shall 
bruise your head. Who? The enemy of our souls. He's going to bruise the head of the seed of the woman. He's going to... Or excuse me. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to bruise the heel of the one, the seed of the son of the woman, but he's going to deliver the knockout blow to the head. And how's that going to happen? Well, we're seeing that God had a plan of a promised Messiah and each successive patriarch that we're studying is the way in which God fulfills Genesis chapter 3, that prophecy. How does he get to the place where this separation between man and God because of the sin and rebellion can lead to and result in presence or togetherness or reconciliation between God and man? And he's going to do it through the person and work of a Messiah. And these chapters are showing us how God not only fulfills sovereignly and providentially his promises, but also how he protects protects that promise and those people. Is everybody with me? That's the overview. And now when we get to Genesis chapter 27, we see another episode in the life of Isaac and Rebecca. And I got to tell you folks, if you came here for a happy story, this ain't the chapter. And yet it is happy. If you see it not from a performance-based theology, but from a grace-based idea. If you look at it through the lens of grace and keep that in mind because our Inclination and um, tendency is to say, man, I want these people to be perfect. These people who I've heard about and thought about, I want them to be perfect and to do everything right. And these are the people who have been charged now or who've been given the promise. And I got to tell you, look how they act. Every last one of them in this sorry, sad story are acting really unfaithful. (laughs) Sometimes it's cringy. I mean, it's really hard to read. Here's what I mean. Chapter 27, book of Genesis, verse 1. Now it came to pass... When Isaac was old, folks, he's in like 130s, 135s. This is funny in a way. (laughs) He's going to live to about 180. But he's like, oh. When I read this, I'm like, "Is, is Isaac a hypochondriac or what? But anyway, when it came to pass, he was old. I'm getting there. I have glaucoma, so my eyes are dim. So I sympathize with this. His eyes were so dim that he couldn't see. That he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. Now, time out. I just read to you the promise that was given to his wife. Genesis chapter 25. I read to you the promise. Now, I got to tell you. I'm sure now, by this point, Isaac knows that the older is going to serve under the younger. We have this story between Isaac and Abimelech in chapter 26, but then immediately, the man of the promise, Isaac, wants to go against God. Do you catch this? And give the promise to his favorite son. It's like he wants to use magic or something, or I don't know what, sprinkle some fairy dust on the thing that God has said and change the course of God's promise. God's promise is that the younger would serve the older. Here he brings the older out. Why? Because it tells us in the prior chapter that he loved this kid more than the other one because he did the things that the child did the things that the 
father like to do? We're talking total dysfunction here, folks. And not only that, not just dysfunction within the family, this is complete disobedience. The promise is going to the younger, Jacob. But it's like, you know, that old game that you played as kids where you put hands on top of the other. It's like God said, I'm going to make a promise. Isaac goes, no, you're not. God says, oh, yeah, I am. No, no, you're not. And it's weird and strange how and why he thinks this can happen. It came to pass, he's old, his eyes are dim, couldn't see, that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. Now, I just want you to know that if Isaac's all that old, somewhere over his 100s here, this doesn't mean, get it out of your mind, that Esau and Jacob are little kids. They're adults. They're well into adulthood. They're older than I am, and I'm 35. No, I'm 57. I mean, you get it? 56, but anyway, for a couple more weeks. But they're older than I am. I want you to know they're adults. And he calls Esau, and uh, he answered him and says, Here I am. And then he said, Behold, now I am old. I don't know the day of my death. I don't know. Anyway. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, your bow. Oh, the things that he loved. Nothing wrong with loving a quiver and a bow. But to exclude one child over the other, strange, dysfunction, inappropriate, not good fathering or a parenting. But here, take your quiver, take your bow, go out to the field and hunt game for me. And make me savory food such as I love. And bring it to me that I may eat it, that my soul may bless you before I die. It's strange to me or indicative that the trigger, that the writer here, probably, you know, Moses probably, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to tell us is that the dad was influenced through his stomach to overturn a promise of God. One of the themes of this chapter are the senses. Smell, eyesight, we already saw eyesight, smell, eat, taste, hear. It's all in here in this chapter. And here, this person, man, Isaac, who's been called to transfer and hold the promise of God. This is a pretty important promise. That you be the son of the promise and you transfer it to one of your sons who God says, I'm going to pick. God says, I'm going to pick the son. Yet this one tries to overturn it and he's very entrenched. He, the, the things that influence him, that move him, that he likes are the base things of life. The What tastes good, what looks good, what feels good, etc. You get it? And the Bible says, be very careful about that in Galatians 5 and other places. There's nothing wrong with being hungry or smelling something that you like. But to let those things rule your life, the fleshly things of the world, to rule our life as opposed to the spiritual things now becomes a real problem and can venture into idolatry. And of course, I don't have to tell you, we live in a culture that is obsessed with these things, what somebody looks like, what kind of cologne you wear, what kind of clothes you wear, what kind of car you have, what kind of job you have, what kind of power you have, what kind of image you have. It's all based on these sorts of things. But he says, make me this food and bring it to me that I can eat. Now, Rebecca, you think, well, mom's going to enter in here and just be a fine sort what does this tell you about Rebecca and Isaac's relationship? She has to eavesdrop. I don't know, but why can't they just speak on these things husband to wife? But she doesn't do that. 
because she loves the other son, the Bible tells us. Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Now, remember, the guy's in his 70s. (laughs) This isn't like a little kid. I mean, what could the guy say right here? Mom, what, what are we doing here? I mean, we're supposed to be a family. You love dad. Dad loves you. I love Esau. Esau sort of loves me, but, you know, brotherly stuff. And we all love you. Why, why don't we just get together and just talk this through? Not putting the onus on Rebecca, but J- Jake, uh, Jacob could have said so to these things. This, this didn't have to spiral so far out, far out of control. You get what I'm saying? But but she says, now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now into the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I'll make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. Now, listen, this is going to become a major theme in Jacob's life. Because after this chapter, you know, he's going to go live somewhere else. He's never going to see his mom again alive. And you know the story. There's going to be this time in 20 years hence where he's going to come and wrestle with the man of God and eventually get a limp. You you guys know this story? What does he say, though, as he's holding on and doing his wrestling? I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Now, I want you to store that away for a second. Because blessing becomes a major part of this chapter. The mom who knows the promise wants to make sure the son who she loves the most, A, and B, was told by God that he was going to have the promise, gets the promise. So why not trust in God and let God do the work because this promise is going to come to pass instead of being so deceptive? And don't you say to yourself, I sort of scratch my head and say, don't don't take this the wrong way, what I'm about ready to say. It's sort of jocular. Man, is that stupid. And then I think to myself, "Uh uh-oh. Those are the sort of things I engage in. I try to manipulate situations. Try to figure them out. I try to talk to this person and talk to that person and do this thing and move this over here and move that over here and say, okay, God, I've made the preparations. Do your work. And boy, families can get really jammed up in this way, huh? Whether it be your biological family or your church family. It's when we decide, isn't it, that we're going to listen to our cravings and carnal nature above what the spiritual tells us and move too far ahead of God to manipulate all the situations when we're worried and stressed that God won't deliver on His promise where we make things even worse. And here, she says, uh, you go get this stuff for me. You're going to take it to your father, and he's going to bless you before his death. She really wants the blessing. She knows about the blessing. She goes about it the wrong way. And Jacob said to Rebekah, verse 11, his mom, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. Let's just call it off and do it the right way. Nope, doesn't say that. 
he keeps going with it. Well, perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him. And I'm good. I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. If I had music right here, the appropriate music, it'd be like da 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 or something. Mom goes, aha. I've thought it all out, mom says. And mom says this, but his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice and go get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother and his mom made savory food. By the way, she turned this around really quick, such as his father loved. And she knew what father loved. She probably put in the right spices, had it at the right temperature, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Then Rebecca took that. Look, listen to this. The choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house. Folks, he's an old man. I doubt that he had his little pajamas over at mommy's house. In other words, mom had planned for this. And she had them at her ready. You get what I'm saying? She had them at her ready. So he took, it looks like she schemed this. She's planned this and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. You guys hear Warren Wearsby? Warren Wearsby, the pastor to the pastors, written commentaries like crazy. A lot of pastors look through them from all different flavors of denominations. What an amazing man of God that God used in a mighty way and uh, blessed many people in the, the church of God through his writings and his preaching and his pastoring at a church. Maybe you've heard of Warren Wearsby. I love Warren Wearsby's definition of faith. It's really long. I'm kidding because I can remember it. Here's why. Here, here's, here's what, how Warren Wearsby uh, defines faith. Living life without scheming. Think about that. Living life without scheming, but trusting in God, of course. Living life without scheming. And when you get to this chapter, man, you're like, wait a minute. The people of faith, who God has made these amazing promises to, who've been chosen and picked are acting as unfaithful as anyone could act. Because they're living, and this whole chapter is, one great scheme. Well, really, four great schemes (laughs) tied into one great scheme. (laughs) So she put the skins of the kids of the goat on his hands. Can you imagine how ridiculous it must have looked? But he couldn't see, we remember. And then she gave the savory food and the bread which she'd prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, who are you, my son? He can't see. He's got to ask. Sounds sort of like his brother. Brother, other, Each brother sort of sounds like each other. Well, Jacob said to his father, listen to this. I'm Esau. He's totally lying. He's totally scheming. He's totally living life without faith. He's dressing up like another. I've done just as you told me. Please arrive. Look, he's totally, completely... He's not hiding it here. He's not, these aren't half truths. These are bold faced lies. I did just as you told me. Well, I didn't tell you anything really. So please arise, sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly? My son, they turned this around way too quick, but they had to turn it around way too quick because Esau is a good hunter. He's going to go home, make the stuff and bring it. And it's going to be pretty quick. So they do turn it around quick, and then it, it, it devolves into the maybe the worst sentence, probably the worst sentence in Jacob's life. And he said, 
because the Lord your God brought it to me. Well, wait a second. Not only has he lied now, he's schemed, he's acted outside of faith, but this almost results in blasphemy. He puts God's name in the lie. This is bad. Because so pious. Oh, the Lord just brought it to me as I was out hunting. Whoa. You see the seriousness of it? That's what I'm trying to draw out is the seriousness of this. And Isaac said to Jacob, well, please come here. Now, listen, he's heard him. He's listened, he's talked, and it's something doesn't sound right. He's sensing something's weird with the timing. And Isaac says to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you. Touch my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. <laughs> so Jacob goes near, went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him. And he said, the voice is Jacob's voice. But the hands are the hands of Esau. Hmm. I don't understand, Isaac says. And he didn't recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Circle it. Mark it. And then he said, really, look, look, he's blessed him. You get it? He's got the blessing. Whatever that all entails, that entails, and and we're going to talk about it here in a minute, but he blessed him. That entails probably some inheritance, probably some ability to lead the family. But it's some other things, too, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute when we get down to the blessing, but he gives him one more chance. The Lord gives him one more chance. Are you really Esau? The out. Just come clean. Live a life of faith. Trust in God, not self and deception and scheming. Just one more time. Here it comes. No, I'm, I'm not Esau. No, he says, I am. Well, he said, uh, hey, bring it near to me and I'll eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and he kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing. Do you see all the senses involved here? And he blessed him. And this is what he said during the blessing. This is really important. Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field. Which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven of the fatness of the earth. God's going to bless you and these things that you're going to need and he's going to prosper you and the things that you're going to need to live. There's going to be rain and moisture for, so that you can live off the land and it's going to be fat. I mean, fat back then, you know how we cut off the fat of a steak, but fat back then <laughs> meant richness and prosperity and beauty and life and richness to your life. And you're going to have that too. And plenty of grain and wine. You're going to have plenty of this. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's son bow down to you. Curse be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Now, when you read this, you're not um, as impacted as somebody who lived at the time to receive the blessing. This was something that happens throughout uh, all of the Bible, that people have special blessings, that have uh, special things prayed over them. And I uh, would argue and say that uh, as we 
Think about this on a big time scale. We recognize and understand that our Father in heaven loves us. In fact, in the book of John, chapter 17, there's an astounding verse that I read to you last week. It almost, when you read it, staggers you. That the Father loves you as if he loves, like, like he loves the Son. There we go. I'm going to say it again because you ain't getting it. The Father loves you like he loves the Son. You, ta- you know how amazing the love of God is? But there's this need of all people at all time. As we think about this, not just in a Genesis perspective, but also as a perspective of all people at all time seek and want to be blessed and known. In fact, why do you think in the book of Ephesians, why, why do you think in the book of Ephesians, the Bible says this, 429, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Well, I'm toast. Is sarcasm corrupt? That's what I want to know. But anyway, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification, 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 that it may impart grace to the hearers? This is part of body life, of church life. You understand that. This is the famous chapter about body life, people in the church. And one of the things that God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to us as brothers and sisters is that ask and pray as you hang out with the Lord and he begins to develop Christ-like character in your life. Listen, that no corrupt word would come out of your mouth. Only what is good for necessary edification. Listen, why am I... Using this verse for Genesis, what's happened here in Genesis 27. It's because all sons and daughters want to know that they have a purpose in life and it can be built up to something that's going to be useful for people and the world. That's edification. Do you see what I'm saying? Edification is if you go down to the downtown Pittsburgh, you see big edifices Buildings and the way in which an edifice becomes a big building floor by floor by floor by floor. They don't just put up a, you know, stand a building on its side, take a big crane and put the building up. They go a little bit by a little bit. They build, they build the edifice into a big tall thing that's beautiful and has good work going on and is productive and blesses people. Amen? And right here in Ephesians, in the part of church life, listen, the Bible says it's important that one of the things that we do as brothers and sisters is build each other up by speaking of the grace of God. Grace of God isn't just patting people on the head saying, oh, you're forgiven for all that. No, what the grace of God is, is it understands that we're flawed, sinful people who need the Lord in desperate ways. And that grace is not only to come into the family of God by salvation, but it's how we live in the family of God by His resource and strength that turns us or conforms us into the image of His Son. It builds us up in maturity and Christ-likeness, and we can participate in that by blessing people. Are you with me? And Jesus, the greatest of all time at this, I mean, sometimes when you see who he picked to be the 12, and you're thinking like I think from a performance standpoint, you're like, hmm, ain't who I would pick. I would pick the popular and the famous and the ones who got along together. I don't want any trouble from you guys. Come on, I'm going to train you. I don't want any trouble. You guys get along. He picks people who hate each other. Brings them together. He brings fishermen 
He brings all kinds of different types. And what Jesus was great at, just by the fact that he brought these 12 from all these different backgrounds, you know something Jesus was great at? Jesus could see and understand flaws and hiccups in people's lives, scars in people's lives. And he could, not in some weird way, but he could see the potential of people. Right? I mean, come on. He takes Peter through all these things. If you're in a human organization, if Peter does one or two of the things that are described in the Gospels, you're like, dude, you're fired. Off the team. No way. And God, or Jesus eventually gets to that place where he takes his name to signify, you know, that, that he wants to build him up and is building him up. He takes his name, Shifting Sands or shifting rock, or little rock, Simon, and he calls him now Peter, rock. He looked into the lives of people and saw, even with their flaws, what they could be in him. You with me? Jesus was the best at it. The Bible tells us that we're to do it, to edify one another, to build one another up. And in the family of God, I think this chapter shows us what it is to desire the blessing and also what it is that we should do to bless people. You with me? And I want you to see, watch, that God did it in an environment where there's flawed people all around. Because one of the tendencies is, when you read this chapter, is, A, is this really in the Bible? These people aren't angels, pious. I mean, what what's going on here? And the second thing is you want them to act good so you can live up to their performance. You get what I mean? And in the middle of that, God's screaming to us that there's grace to be had in the middle of dysfunction. If you really believe in grace, we all say it, unmerited favor. We say unmerited favor, but we hold on to merited favor. We want to act great, be great. Am I advocating against ungodly living? No, of course not. But the reality is we don't always live in a faithful way. I'll raise my hand. And right in the middle of that, God shows us something. And I want you to see something first. There's this kid. I know he's been promised the promise, but there's this kid who desperately wants the blessing of his father. He's desperate for it. Dad, bless me. I know, you're thinking to yourself, I can see the wheels going. Yeah, but they did it. I know, they didn't do it the wrong way. But it doesn't mean that he didn't want the blessing. Remember, 20 years later, he's wrestling with God, saying, I'm not letting go until you bless me. I want the blessing. I want you to know that All kids, of which I include myself, we want the blessing from our heavenly father, yes, but from our earthly fathers and mothers too. And we're holding on until we get it. We'll go to great lengths to get it. But here, what are the elements of this blessing? First, there's physical touch. You're like, what? There's an affectionate thing that I think the Lord does and asks for in kids and between the kids and the parents. And listen, if somebody's here and a single mom, well, between the mom and the son. And if there's a kid here that doesn't have a mom or a dad, grandparents or uncles or whatever, foster parents, whatever. He came near and they kissed each other. There was this touch. And you know, we were just talking last night, some of us. You know all the studies, right, of a blessing, Kids who are blessed and satisfied and 
feel, feel filled up. Listen, it says that when they were little and continuing on, the way in which they were handled, and I'm talking about appropriate touch now, not inappropriate touch, but the way in which they were handled and loved and picked up and talked to and read to and, 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 and thought about impacts their brain and their hearts, right? And I would say this, listen, if you're not an affectionate person, we'll pray that the Lord would allow you to be an affectionate person. Because one of the great things about this is that there was a tender touch between a parent and a son. Now you go, well, wait a minute. What does this have to do with God and Jesus? Well, you remember when the kids were around Jesus and uh, Jesus asked to bring them and sit them down, don't send them away? In Mark 10, chapter 13, it said that Jesus touched them. He was affectionate with it. Appropriate touch, not inappropriate. And don't you love it? I mean, some of us here, right? We like to hug. Brothers and sisters, don't you like to get a hug? Some of you are like, no, no way, don't hug me. (laughs) But this hug, you know, and just say, I love you, a side hug, you know, man, I'm in your corner, I'm rooting for you, and you're, you're a blessing to me, and I can see the potential in you. That's a blessing. You're delivering a blessing. And then the other thing that you see in here, (laughs) even though it's the wrong son, I get it. You're going to come up after here and say it's the wrong son. I get it. I understand. But look what the Bible's telling you to do as a person who delivers a blessing. Find something in the person that they're good at. And talk about it. And I'm not talking about this newfangled, you know, don't keep score at baseball game type stuff. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, by the way. I'm not talking about any of that. That's just, if you're a part of that crowd, sorry, I apologize. Just as a side note, are you ever going to teach? Come on, if you don't keep score, how are you going to learn to deal with failure? How? What happens when your boss comes in and says, if you don't get this up to this productivity by the end of the month, you're out of here. You say, wait a minute, why are you keeping score? It makes no sense, but that's just something I think. But but here, look, he, he finds something in the man. I know it's the wrong kid, I understand, but I think God uses this to show us how to deliver an appropriate blessing. Man. Dude, you love to be outside. You love to be in the fields. And I want to pray a blessing upon you for prosperity and all that sort of thing. You're going to use that. I know you're going to use that. That's what God's gifted you with, and I know you're going to use that, and you're going to move and grow and expand your territory, or God's going to expand your territory in influence and blessing because He's given you the ability to go out into the fields and do this thing. And you're going to appeal to that crowd. And God, I'm, I'm convinced God's going to bring people to you. And you're going to do that. I want you to see that in this thing, there's this affirmation of the gifts and the abilities that God has given you. And there's this affection and this building up people in edification so that they can go out. Look. Over on this sign and do the ministry that they've been called for. You see that? That's the blessing. And you, you say to that person as you bless somebody, Look at this in verse 37. Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I've made him your master and all his brethren. I've given to him his servants with grain. I want you to see that the father 
even though he understood he'd been duped, was committed to the kid of the blessing, Jacob, to prospering in that thing that the father knew the son had been called unto. You get it? In other words, here, let me, I'm not explaining it well. The person who was doing the blessing was committed to helping and seeing the one in which he saw, saw the gifts and the talents to using those gifts and talents further down the road all of his life so that he could be a blessing for God. Did you see it? And the reason I'm telling you that is I believe, right, that this story sort of helps us to understand what it means to edify other people. Now look, there's something else going on here that really rankles us, especially when we don't want to live by grace. And that's this. And it really rankled the people in the story. And that's this. Wait a minute. He's not the firstborn. Back then, the firstborn was everything. If you were the firstborn, you were the firstborn. And you were going to get the blessing and then the inheritance. And you were going to be the leader. We've said that. That's why in this story, you see, he couldn't go back on his word. Some of us are saying, well, why didn't you just say, psych, you dupe me, I'm calling this null and void. You understand? It's because once he knew he had been duped, remember, he realizes Jacob has to be the son of his promise and it is now realized all this scheming and machination and trying to end run the Lord was all in vain. And he couldn't dupe him and go back because this was the promised son. And the wife had told him this. You with me? Okay, now listen, I'm going round in circles. But you got to stay with me because I think you're going to be an amazingly blessed You know that Jesus himself was called the firstborn over all creation? Raise your hand if you knew that. And that he's the only begotten son of the Father. And there's several places in the Bible where it refers to Jesus as the firstborn. Now, just as a little side note, Jesus is not a created being. You get that, right? He's been from all eternity. My father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. So when the Bible speaks of firstborn and relates it to Jesus, it doesn't mean like in chronology, like you're a created being, you were firstborn, blah, blah, blah. It means in quality. He's the best. He's the man. However you want to say it, there's none like him. Jesus is the firstborn. I I sort of think about it in sports terminology. Can you imagine that? Who won the Super Bowl this year? Oh, no, not the Patriots. Kansas City won the Super Bowl. And so there's a tendency to say they're number one. But... Remember, Kansas City, they are number one, but they weren't the first team of the NFL. You get what I'm saying? And that's sort of what's happening here. Kansas City's the best right now. Jesus is the best for all time. And yet he was never actually created. Of course, he was born from a virgin, we understand, but he wasn't a created being. He's He's God. You with me? And he's called the firstborn. And so naturally, Jesus is best at all of this blessing and has blessed us. If you read the first chapter of Colossians, I'll just paraphrase some of it for you. Listen to this. There's a couple verses in there that say, this, this is astounding. 
that the greatness of Jesus, with, with excuse me, with all the greatness of Jesus and the glories of Jesus, and you could talk on that forever, right? Listen, the Bible says that Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. Oh, come on. That's the best. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. You're in Christ. There's this intimate relationship between Jesus and his followers. We're placed into him, and he's placed into us. You get it? So that God the Father sees us through the lens of Jesus' blood, death, new life, perfect righteousness. Oh, my. You say, why are you making such a big deal about all of this? Well, here's why I'm making a big deal about it. You know, you might be tempted to go away from today's teaching and go, you know what I'm going to do? Here's here's my, by the way, this is how I start to think. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go on Amazon. I'm going to read the, uh, order the 10 best books about how to be a parent. Because I don't want my family to end up like this. And I'm going to become the best parent, and we're going to, implement all these formulas into our parenting and family life so that we can automatically spit out great kids. Anybody else here like me? That's how I start to think about this chapter. That if you don't do things correctly as a mom and dad, that things will go wrong. But if you do things correctly as a mom and dad, everything will go right. And I got to tell you, could you raise your hand if you know that that's not true all the time? Amen, right. What I want you to see here as we continue in this story is that God is blessing and providing and working through and doing a work and showing up in a family that doesn't see it, doesn't want to see it, isn't acting very faithful, ungodly. In fact, as we continue reading, we would just, we'd almost slam our fist on the pulpit and say, those people don't deserve any of this. And that's the point. They don't. See, that's the message. That God inserts his grace into the lives of people who don't act perfectly all the time and may never even appreciate, or may may not appreciate it. Again, time out, rabbit trail, rabbit trail. (laughs) Am I condoning ungodly living? No. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let's live according to what the gospel says. But remember, when you're flawed like I am or we are, it's not because I'm such a great parent. It's because we serve and love the greatest of all. And he's going to do his work, and he might not do it the same in that child as he's going to do in that child, or he might not do the same in that church as he did in that church. Yes, he's the same yesterday, today, And tomorrow, I mean, he is, but don't, I can't put God in a box. And I need reminded of this. It just tells us here that God's work and movement in the lives of his people is through grace. His grace. So let me read you something. As Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Verse 30, now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob 
And Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence, yeah, of course, of Isaac, his father, that Esau came in and he also had made savory fruit and he brought it to his father and he said it to his father. Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. Listen, again, people want to know who they are, what they are, and where they're going. And they want to be accepted and loved and blessed. And you might say, well, Esau wouldn't. I mean, he's the man's man. He goes out and he kills things. And he's into, you know, whatever hunters do. But this isn't going to bother him. But here, it bothers him. Just like it bothers any of us who don't receive love and acceptance. He said, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Oh, and his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he said, well, I'm your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it, all of it, before you came, and I blessed him indeed. He shall be blessed. He was committed to it. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me also, O my father. This was really painful. You can turn with me, if you like, to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't want to turn there, I'm going to read to you uh, verses 16 and 17 because there's commentary on this. Lest there be any fornicator or profane, profane person like Esau, verse 16 says, for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that in uh, afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The father was committed to the blessing of the son. There's nothing he could do. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. I read to you, this is really painful. Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came with the seat, and he's taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. Sort of means manipulator or heel catcher. Because remember, out of the womb, he was catching his heel. He took away my birthright, and now look, he was taken away my blessing. I want you to see something. The birthright was separate from the blessing. The birthright was money, leading, but I need the acceptance and the love. Well, Isaac answered and said, Indeed, I've made him your master, and all his brethren I've given to his servants with grain and wine I've sustained him. What shall I do for you, my son? And Esau said, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from his neck. They were going to be in conflict their whole life. And you know we're going to read about this as they travel after each other and try to hunt each other. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father at a hand, then I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. This is dysfunction, man, at the highest level, sin at the highest level. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, here she is again, eavesdropping, and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to my brother Laban, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. Those are the people that Esau, the ladies that Esau married at the end of the last chapter because he married outside the family of God and he also married more than one person. And it says here, if Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, 
what good will my life be to me? It's, it's inserted there to show how Esau just want to stick it to everybody in the family. Now here, we're going to close on this. You all are like, praise the Lord. Some of you might be saying, well, you know what? Nobody ever blessed me. My parents were terrible or, or I don't know what. And maybe you're being real with yourself right now, but don't want to show it. And you're saying, but I do want to know that, that I'm blessed. That somebody cares for me and loves me. And that I'm accepted somewhere. Well, first of all, in a lower sense, but still a great sense, you're loved and cared for here. Be careful about always pointing out the sins of everybody and talking about how they shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that. And yes, there's a place for that and truth, and I get it, I understand. But people want to know, am I loved and accepted? But the second thing is higher and greater. Remember in Colossians, it says that we're in Christ and he's in us. And from all of eternity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, living in perfect communion with each other, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that communion between each other and perfection and the love that was there. And Jesus has been called the firstborn. And remember, we're in Christ and he's in us. What am I getting at? Well, there's an astounding verse in Hebrews that I want you to know about. (laughs) And when you go away today, I want you to know how loved and accepted you are. You're loved and accepted in the beloved. That's the family of God. But in Hebrews, again, in chapter 12... A little bit later on in the chapter, it says this. As the writer of Hebrews is talking about the difference between the mountain here on earth where the law was given and all that sort of thing and the heavenly mountain. You with me? Okay, hold on. You can eat in two minutes. And it says this. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. If that doesn't warm your heart, I don't know what will. Because the place for us that's available to us because of the Son of of God, Jesus Christ, The heavenly city is also called the church of the firstborn, which means that all those who reside in heaven are treated like the firstborn. You read in this chapter and you're going, why isn't he the firstborn? Why isn't she the firstborn? And you see the inequities and you see the ugliness and the dysfunction. And you know that there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people or whatever. I don't know the number, but in heaven who are all considered the firstborn by God the Father. Yay. This is amazing, folks. If you're sitting out there and you don't know whether you're accepted or loved, in Jesus Christ you are. 
You're part of the church of the firstborn. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come and we say, oh, wow. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, the one who is in perfect communication and love, self-sufficiency in the all eternity with you who came out of the heavens as a baby to die on our place and rose and is seated at your right hand. He's our advocate, our interceder. Lord, in him we are and he's in us. You now consider us your firstborn. How could we ever thank you? In Jesus' name, amen.